0: If you're working with students who have social skills goals, you're going to want to tune in and listen to this episode. We talk All about social skill instruction today. I had a great conversation with Ashley Rose. She is the founder and clinical director of Mission Cognition Social Skills Development Centers. We talk all about the intake process, assessment. How do we develop goals for social instruction? How are these goals selected? the rationale behind selecting the goals, how do we plan for the group. So I talk a little bit about how I run my speech therapy groups in a school-based setting. And she talks about the framework she uses when she's planning for the variety of groups that she offers at her center. So we share really great actionable tips that you can use with your students. We also talk about planning for generalization. We know that social skills are important for our students. And we talk about how do we help our students apply these in the natural environment? How do we provide feedback and coaching with these skills? We also talk about the topic of masking. This may be a new topic for you, but we know that we only want to choose teaching social skills that are going to benefit our students and are going to help them navigate the environment and help them have a more robust way to communicate with the world. This is such a a great episode. I can't wait to get into it. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right. Thanks for joining us on episode 30 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. Today, we have with us Ashley Rose. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashley. It's so nice to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to it. And I think that I met Ashley, well, probably online when I started my business, but we did get to meet in real life. In San Diego. Yeah, at ABAI, which is a really cool conference. And gosh, that was probably three years ago now. So it's been a while. Yeah, time flies. (laughs) It does for sure. So it's always fun to connect with people in real life. And Ashley always has Such great information. Um, Oh, and you actually did a a presentation for us at the ABA Forum, which was really, really cool this past spring. So if people are new to you, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into the field?
1: Sure. I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version for that one. Um, When I was in high school, I took a job as a mother's helper, and the youngest son in the family was autistic. And I was very unsure about what I wanted to do career-wise, You know what I was planning to do after school. And this mother was just convinced you have to go into special education. You would do so great working with kids with autism. And I'll be honest, I was very hesitant about that because I certainly wasn't the type who really felt comfortable around others who were different or, or disabilities. And looking back on it now, it's because I just didn't understand it. So she had said, Oh, sit in, uh, you know, on my son's ABA session. Like, what is ABA? You know, okay. And I sat in on a session and I immediately said, I'm not doing that. That's not for me. And what I learned was not all ABA is the same. Not all programs are the same. And this parent said to me, Hey, I was feeling like that was kind of a little bit off. There's this new thing called verbal behavior. Let's go check it out. So I was 18 years old sitting in the front row of a three-day intro to verbal behavior with Dr. Carbone feverishly taking notes. And that was the start of an obsession, learning about learner motivation and man training and following the child's mo. And fast forward now, you know, 18 years later, I've worked in uh, school-based programs, home programs. But about eight years ago or so, I decided to really specialize in play and social behaviors. I had been working with a population of learners with severe self-injury, property destruction, aggression, and we did a great job reducing all of those problem behaviors But because the kids were being educated in such restrictive placements, they had no opportunity to really connect with or positively engage with others. And I want it to be the answer to that. So I'm now highly specialized. I opened centers about eight years ago, and that's all we do, play in social skills groups, and I utilize the principles of ABA in in
0: everything we do. I remember you telling me the Carbone story when I met you in person, and I was like, I know this is why I like you because I attended a two-day conference um, held by Dr. Carbone down in Austin, Texas, and I just felt like he was talking to just me. I was like, yes, this is right. I had the huge workbook that he used to give out. I still have that in my office, and it just really made a lot of sense to me. And actually, my BCBA supervisor, her supervisor was Dr. Carbone. So that is really how I kind of learned all about this too really awesome and i love that because i was just talking to some parents today about you know the pros and cons of being in a public school program for a younger student with autism versus doing an ABA clinic, and you know, when you are in a school, typically the in, the instruction is not as intense, but you do have access to peers, and sometimes, just like you're saying, that's not always the case. And you know, an ABA center is something that's structured, and so each setting kind of has its pros and cons. So I love the idea of what you have set up with your with your centers. And is it called Mission Cognition? Is that the name of your center, or does it go yeah, by so different so
1: we're, we're Mission Cognition Social Skills Development Centers, and I think about changing the name a lot, but we're so established. I, you know, I don't know if I will now, but I, the name Mission Cognition came from me just wanting to share information and materials going back years, something like 15 years. So when I was working as a school consultant or teacher trainer, we had this site and teachers could go on and check resources or blog posts. And I just hung on to it. and I added Social Skills Development Center so people know what it is we're actually doing here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I love it. Yeah. And I think people that know you and know your brand, it's hard. People get used to knowing you as one thing. So no, I love that you're filling that void because I always try to model my instruction for my students. Like That's always been one of my favorite things is group therapy. And just trying to model for staff. This is how the students can engage together. And these are things that they could do for leisure and all those great things. So that's why I love all your ideas are just really, really great. Whether you're listening and you're a parent or you're a professional working at ABA clinic or you're a speech therapist... You always have great takeaways. And so today, I know we're going to talk about social skills, the emphasis on early social responding and things like that, which I think is such a great topic to talk about. We had one topic earlier when we started the podcast, all about social skills with one of the people who owns How To ABA. And it was really great. They talked about how they work on social skills in their center. Um, but I think this more holistic approach of social skills and discussing. On that and how kind of social skills when you say you're working on social skills that can mean a whole thing online right and so we're gonna Uh kind of we're gonna talk we're gonna break it down today so let's get into that so talk to me a little bit about do you want to talk about social skills just to start like what you mean by that kind of how you focus on it why is it important to work on what what we should be thinking as providers when we're working on quote-unquote social skills Absolutely. And I think having a working definition is a great place to start because
1: like you said, when people hear social skills, they don't always envision or think of the same things. So first off, it's not an etiquette class. Um, I'm not just focused on manners or saying please and thank you or giving compliments. I'm really looking at social interactions. What are the behavioral excesses or deficits that are making it really difficult for this person as an individual to have more positive interactions with themselves and the others around them. So their their peers, their teachers, their parents. So when we break it down, it's really any skill that involves interacting or communicating with another person. So it's, you know, you have your things like perspective taking there, but why are skills like that important? If you're in a conflict with someone else, it's important to try to see their side of it. We look at that cognitive rigidity. So all of those things are really playing into what potentially could be a barrier for that individual. So I'm not looking to follow just some off-the-shelf social skills curriculum. And not to say that there aren't some great resources out there, but really looking at it from a highly individualized model or framework of who is this child, teen, adult as an individual? And where can we provide some supports to make life just more comfortable for them?
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great idea. And I think that's what can be hard versus public versus private, is that sometimes providers in a public program feel stressed about the schedule and, oh, we have a new student and they have social skill instruction and we need to make sure it's functional for them. But I always, that's really something that I love is like going into the classroom and providing that type of instruction and modeling it. But I know that it can be difficult because in a private setting, you can probably, which I know we're going to talk about, kind of your vision for how you set up groups, what are the criteria for the groups that you're offering and things like that, which can just be a little bit more difficult because we have such a rigid time frame. And you know, in the public school, you have to serve everybody. So it, it just gets a little bit more difficult. But can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, what is your group model? How do you form those groups? I think that's really, really interesting.
1: Yes, happy to. And like you said, I have a lot more flexibility in center. Um, I don't have to deal with, as I deal with scheduling, but in a very different way. So I'm um, in private practice. All we do is play in social groups. So uh, if a family's interested, they will fill out an application for their child. It's just a very basic, um, some preliminary information, age, areas of strength and need. So I can get a feel for some cognitive abilities, language abilities, and presence of, you know, maybe some behaviors of concern. When we group the kids together, I'm um, looking at age, I try to They keep the groups um, no more than two years apart, but I'm also looking at those areas, like I mentioned. So, language, cognitive abilities, but also their interests and their preferences. So, once I have a best fit group together, I'm looking at these participants. I think they would work really well together. The next step is trying to identify that day and time that's going to be convenient for everybody. And over the years, that's become a lot easier because we're more established. You know, we we have a good reputation. So, if I say to a family, Thursdays at 6 p.m. is where it's at, families have been really awesome about making that that work. But when you're starting off, if anybody's listening and they're interested in starting off running groups, that is going to be the most challenging piece, but stick with it. One of the most common mistakes I see is that you know you get these gung ho really excited professionals and they have two kids and they want to form a group. Uh, Like what happens if one of the kids is out Are there really shared interests? Are they truly a best fit for each other? And if you try to form a group without taking into consideration all those factors, it's not always likely that the group will be successful. And if it's not successful, it limits referrals, you know, it kind of starts to, to fade out.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I had, I've had i had some clients ask me, do you offer groups? And in my mind, I'm like, gosh, that sounds great. But then in my mind, I'm like, I don't have time for that. And logistically, it's just really hard. You know what I mean? To set it up. It's great that you specialize in this because it's almost like you need to. Because I can see as providers, they're like, well, we're going to offer a group. And then maybe like you said, one person signs up or maybe it's two kids, but their language levels aren't exactly going to mesh together or... You know, different things like that. So, how do you set up your groups? Like, do you have different groups that have a different focus, or how does that work? I
1: do. So, we serve our youngest right now is three. Our oldest is, I want to say, about 35. And I have, in general, three leveled groups. So, I have an A, B, and C. A a separate program is our developmental play group model, which I'm happy to to talk about. But with a level A group, that's going to be kids with emerging language. So you're looking at like your level one, level two, like VB Map kids if you you know, if your listeners are familiar with VB Map. So this is a lot of embedded discrete trials, very play and leisure-based. Then when you get to your levels B and C, these are gonna be kids with more language. You're starting to see some more rule governed behavior here becoming much more appropriate for something like BST, behavioral skills training. So they would benefit from instruction, modeling, rehearsal, and feedback. I'm certainly not telling my, uh, you know, level one VB map kid, today we're going to learn about sharing. Sharing is important because X, Y, Z, here's what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Completely ir- irrelevant, not a best use of their time. Mm-hmm. So that's how we essentially differentiate the group. So you are a complete embedded discrete trial kind of my modified shortened version of BST and then my full-on like BST or teaching interaction procedure type
0: model. Okay, interesting. So when I do group, I do group therapy. I'm a school-based therapist three days a week as a speech therapist. and I have my own private practice. But when I'm doing group in a school, I kind of have this flow of how I generally run the group. You know, like sometimes we usually start with some type of conversation starter, which if there's you know, a certain amount of kids, that can take you know five minutes, right? Getting everybody to engage with the activity. Then we do some kind of literacy-based activity. I'm really lucky. I work in this amazing district. We have smart boards and it's really great. And we'll do an adapted book together. And then we do kind of a vocabulary extension activity. And then we usually do like a leisure skill activity. So the students that I'm working with are a bit older. So we'll do like yoga. This year, we just finished up with modified weightlifting. We are using water bottles for some of the kids kids are really lightweight, stuff that I'm like, Oh, well, they get older, they can go to the gym. I know they have opportunities to do this in high school. So do your groups typically have... I know it's individualized based on just the groups you're talking about. But do you guys have some general framework of what you're trying to accomplish within each goal, uh, within each group?
1: Yes, we have a very specific framework. Um, Each group has its own structure and routine, but I work backwards. So I identify the goals and objectives, and then I form the group structure and routine based upon that. In-house, we've developed what we call global focus areas, very similar to what you might conceptualize as like domains. So in-house, we've identified 15 of them. And when I'm going through and when I'm forming the best fit groups, it's typically because there's going to be shared global focus areas which need to be targeted. So let's say, for example, we're working on um, sportsmanship, perspective-taking, and teamwork. Those are the specific areas in which those learners are really struggling. I then form the groups based upon that. We're always going to be doing a competitive activity. We're always going to be doing an activity involving perspective-taking. And that's every week. And we do that because we need to make sure that we are embedding enough skill practice and also that you're programming for generalization by doing a lot of different activities a lot of different stimuli um, so definitely a framework and a structure routine for each of the groups
0: okay that's interesting yeah so you do uh, so do you do a lot of the planning or do you also have other people who are kind of helping to facilitate the planning or are you running some of the groups or you know how does that work i'm just wondering like you have such a great framework I'm sure that it's taken a lot of time for you to train your staff on these kind of these are the global areas because I think what's interesting about social skills is number one, just the thought about like, why are we really teaching the students this? Why is this important? And then number two, when you're providing such a specialized service, I think this is kind of where it gets hard for a lot of providers. Um, there are a lot of pieces and parts out there and resources that are like, okay, this is how you teach social skills. And you know, like, it's just not that easy, right? It's just, that's not the <laughs> best way to do things. Like you're yeah. super creative. I think that's why I like you because I love group therapy. And I love to think about like, okay, this is what my students' goals are. These are activities that I think are functional th- for them for life. And this is how I'm going to like put all this together. It's really an art form. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, it's really hard to get all those pieces kind of meshed together. So, are you helping to develop like the framework? Are you running some of the groups and then training staff on how to also do this as well?
1: Yes, a little bit of both. And I've been able to uh, consistently fade myself out a little more from year to year, you know, as as staff become a lot more competent and confident in some of these skills. So the development of the global focus areas was very helpful, but I was still relying on pulling from a lot of pieces and parts of some other commercially available assessment tools, which weren't really lining up as neatly as I would like with the global focus areas. So there was still a lot of support needed on my end to develop goals. So in response to that, I created our own in-house assessment tool. Mm-hmm. So now the our staff can assess and they can immediately see what the global focus areas are that we need to prioritize. And they're you know, able to more efficiently identify goals aligned with those. And once you have those goals, we know how to do the structure and routine of the group. So I have a lot of templates that we use. We call group at a glance. Uh, we have student snapshots all the individual goal sheets. So they know exactly what I'm looking for. And specifically, we focused on your rationale for the goals you've selected. I want to know exactly why this is meaningful, functional, relevant, and developmentally appropriate for this specific learner. So it was a lot of, I think, work initially and probably a lot of paperwork, you know, on the end of our um, lead facilitators. But now that framework has really become just part of the thought process and it's it's great to see more autonomy certainly with our group leaders
0: yeah, that's really great. Well, it sounds like that's so great because sometimes it's really hard to do an assessment. I was just doing a podcast episode last week with someone and we were talking about observation and just how important observation is. You know, like as providers, as speech therapists, you know, we have to use standardized tests and I do love the VB map. I talk about it often here on the podcast, but we know that doing an observation and just kind of seeing how this student is operating is so very important to see how are they actually applying social skills or whatever their language skill set is into the natural environment because that gives us such a great snapshot. So do you have... So you have it intake, you have parents filling out kind of a questionnaire. And then do you have the students come in and then you have this in-house assessment where you're looking at these different domain and these, these global areas? Is that kind of the workflow that you guys do? Yes.
1: So the assessment is a multi-part package. So we have the a parent questionnaire, parent parent interview, um, participant questionnaire. So if the learner is able to answer some questions about areas they'd like to work on, I absolutely would like them to do that. We have the structured observation piece. So I was just nodding my head enthusiastically for those who, who can't see. I can read about a kid on paper all day long, but gosh, just give me 10 minutes to see them interacting with peers during recess or with their sibling when there's free time at home. And it's like, oh, there it is. You know, there's what we really need to be be working on. So that is a, a large component of, of how we're identifying what the priority targets are. And then I have a direct assessment piece. But for the structured observation, the kids are invited in for a trial class. So pretty much always I will have group in session. So once we take a look at that very basic initial application, and I say, oh, you know, Johnny looks like a really good fit for a group learning model in general, also looks like a good fit for our program. I really think it's going to be Tuesdays at six. That's going to be the spot for him. I think these peers are going to be great Our topics are, are aligned with what I perceive as needs to be. Let's have him come in. Um, and then I'm able to see Was I right? (laughs) Is this the appropriate group for them? But I'm also to see the interaction with with peers so I can kind of nail down what what those goals are. But I also want to know whether or not Johnny liked it. And I I don't enroll kids unless they want to be here. And I feel very, very strongly about that. So those are all factors in the next decision of whether or not we're offering placement.
0: That's awesome. Because I think sometimes for, for kids with autism or other disabilities, and really depending on where you live, I mean, where I live is a very dense area with supports for, as I perceive, autistic, you know, children with like modified story times and modified plays and, you know, but sometimes kids who have a disability, it's hard for them to have an after-school activity or, you know, so I feel like what you're offering is something so cool because it almost serves as that after-school activity activity that sometimes kids with disabilities don't get access to that. You know, they might be running to the different therapies but what you're providing is is something so cool. I really love that. Now it sounds like the activities that you're doing in your groups are, you know, very functional, easy to generalize, but could you talk to us maybe about some of the activities that you're doing with one of the groups and then maybe speak to how you would help parents understand how to generalize that into or other providers, you know that you might be collaborating with, like how do they get that information to then generalize into the natural environment?
1: Sure. And I'll give you two quick examples of different groups so you can kind of see the, the differences. So for a developmental play group, the kids come in and they have 40 minutes of facilitated play centers. It's free toy centers. I have every toy under the sun. So we have the roller coaster out and the tunnels and the farm set and castles, whatever it might be. And staff are trained to be on the floor, to be modeling play, to look as inviting as possible. They're learning how to play with kids without placing a lot of demands and how to facilitate and scaffold to the next level. We transition to a circle time. We're working on independent. The kids get their own carpet squares, they come to sit, all your man-tapped interverbal targets are embedded within that circle time along with imitation. We transition outside of the circle time room to another classroom because being able to transition is, is very tough for, for a lot of our kids. So I want to make sure there's opportunities for practice. We do a story time, more man tact and introverbals, modeling a tons of spontaneous language, joint joint attention. Look, there's a the rabbit. What's he going to do next? Turn the page. Some structured activity that goes along uh, with that. And then some gross motor stuff. So we're playing kickball. We're playing parachute. We're doing freeze dance. So all typical preschool stuff, if you walked in, there's your, your immediate thought is not, wow, look at this. Look at this ABA program for preschoolers. It looks like it's a bunch of kids playing, but the way that we've structured the activities and the embedded practice, that's what makes us a clinically strong program. With a BST group, it's a little bit different. So they do, they start off with a mystery spelling game and they're guessing letters to decode what the lesson of the day is. They work on certain badges, like a flexibility badge or a conflict resolution badge, we um, do our multiple exemplar training, typically a video model. I'll find something on YouTube that maybe wasn't necessarily made for social skills training, but it meets my needs and it leads to a lot of discussion. We try to talk about just the other day, we introduced the concept of plan A and plan B for flexibility. So when you go to McDonald's, your plan A is to order that Eminem McFlurry. All right, plan A, Eminem McFlurry. Oh, the shake machine is down. And then they they think it's very funny when I do what you're not supposed to do. What? Fix the shake machine. You better go. And you know, they find the hysterical, even though I only use examples of things I know that they would do. But the humor breaks it a little bit, right? And then we talk about plan B. All right, well, you know, I really wanted to get the, you know, McFlurry, but I'm gonna get some chocolate chip cookies instead. And then um, they have 15 to 20 minutes to free time. I cannot stress the importance of having free time. If you're going to run a social skills program, that's your in situ or in situation assessment piece. Great. I taught you all these things in a you know clinical structured setting, but unless you're using those conflict resolution skills, when you're playing outside, you know, kickball or whatever game, it doesn't matter. It's not mastered unless you're using it where it, where it counts.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a great idea. I think that's a real life example too, with the McDonald's, uh, something breaking down or Starbucks not having anything. You know, like these are real things people are facing, especially with COVID. I don't know. Starbucks is always out of something I need. No, that's good. And I love that idea because you can provide so much. You know, when I'm writing an IEP goal, And it's about social skills, instruction. I am providing instruction in a very similar way with some of my students where, you know, we're working on a skill like, you know, entering the classroom quietly. So I discuss it with the student, the student, we dialogue about it. I make a video model of it. We watch it. What's nice is I can go in then to the classroom, to the general education classroom and see, is the student applying the skill? That's and then awesome. after the fact, yeah, then I can, I can give feedback and coaching. And so I put that a lot because I think if we forget that part, which is you know behavioral skills training, if you haven't been taught directly in that, you know, giving that feedback and coaching, I think is how we master anything. Like I know as an adult, even when I was starting this podcast, I, I took a course, I studied, I, you know, I've watched people doing... I've been listening to podcasts for years, right? I'm getting feedback on my podcast. Like that's how you build your area of competency. So I think talking about that, because I think some people are like, yeah, this is great. I would love to provide something like this. But what are all the different pieces and parts? And I'm sure... That that kind of unstructured time or how you're embedding it, you know, where you're embedding it for a a purpose. And it's probably such a great time that you're going to see things that you don't see during the structured lesson, right?
1: Oh, it's amazing. And I used to run hour long groups and it just wasn't long enough. It felt like we were having too much structured time. So now they're 90 minute groups and it's just like, that's the sweet spot.
0: That's awesome. Very cool. So talk to me a little bit about this concept of... Ashley is actually new to TikTok. Welcome, Ashley, to TikTok. I talk about social media. <laughs> I talk about TikTok a lot and Instagram and all the social media channels because I'm big on dissemination. And I think that's a fun way to do it. But there's this idea of... And it might be a new concept for some people that are listening. But you know, talk to us a little bit about masking. You know, When people talk about social skills training, I think that when we said like let's start with the working definition or why is why is this important to this particular person, the way that I always frame it, because I tend to work with older students in a school setting, when I'm in a meeting, I always say, you know, this is potentially very important for competitive employment and I talk with the students and coach them like hey you know you know we talked about the social fake this year it's like i do this all the time as an adult i pretend i'm interested in something that somebody's talking about but i'm not this is just a skill i've honed over the years it, like as soon as you're employed right this is just something that you have to do when you're talking to other people, so could you talk to us a little bit about this idea of masking, and you know maybe how to address uh, you know some anti-ABA criticism if you say you're working on social skills or just that kind of that topic.
1: Absolutely, and and I'm um, I'm still listening, I'm still learning, but I'll share sort of what I've come to understand um, thus far in this in this journey. So when I first started in the field, I was taught that we need to reduce self-stimulatory behavior. So like, you know, the flapping or some of the vocalizations and the rationale behind that was because it would be very stigmatizing to the the child to engage in these behaviors in public. So you're thinking you're going to protect them from being bullied or for having a harder, you know, life than than they should or that was really going to impede upon learning. So Autistic voices are really speaking out against those types of practices now because stimming is a way to regulate. So there's something going on in the body, you know, over or under So you're attempting to cope or soothe and looking at it now, you're not inside of somebody else's body. So for you to be the decision maker on how they regulate, I, I think is very unethical. So that's an example of um, where masking might be taught is, is stop looking autistic. And there are some STEMs that could potentially be uh, dangerous or harmful. So certainly we're looking at replacement behaviors there, but you really have to understand what the sensory um, components are going to do that. And some other examples would be relying heavily on scripting. I understand the research base behind it, but it's something that I have really never subscribed to. When I'm teaching conversation, I teach more of a framework or a template. So trading information or like an answer and ask back, but I've never taught exactly what to say. I want, you know, all of our participants to have the you know, autonomy and individuality in, in in what they're in what they're saying. Um, so when you talk about asking being harmful, it's that really you're waking up in the morning and you're pretending to be someone you not you're not to fit society's expectations or these societal norms. And you gave an example of, you know, yes, you're not as mouth as some things. Small talk is painful for me. I do not enjoy it at all. But I know that there are situations in which I have to do it. But I'm looking at what my values are, what my goals are, and prioritizing how important it is for me to be doing it at that moment. I'm also an adult with ADHD. She has all kinds of my own stimmy stuff going on. Like I'm always tapping a foot or like I'm tracing a nail. Or, and I don't really try to limit those things. In some situations, I do. But I think the overall concern is pretend suppressing things that make you you or having to feel again like you're have to be a different person to be accepted by society all day long and it's been shown that uh, it there's trauma responses you know and when, when that's the case anxiety depression so I think we all need
0: To be very, very careful about how we are choosing um, our goals and selecting goals. Yeah, I think that's so important to talk about. The one thing that I struggle with too, I've always taught conversation in kind of this natural way too. Like I've, I've never really used conversation scripts. And you know, if I ask a student, you know, a question and they answer me back, like. I'm fine with that answer if it's a logical answer and we're working on social reciprocity. But I've gotten into some disagreements with parents where they're like, well, that's not really, that's not a true answer or that's not really what they had for lunch or, and I tried to coach and say, well, you know, for me, it's more about the back and forth. It's more about this type of social interaction for this particular student that I was working on at that language level. Because for me, kind of looking at the student and looking at them as an independent communicator, I'm thinking like, well, I say something, you say something. I say something, you say something. It's more about this shared activity. And I think it's really important for us to analyze, you know, if you're working on social skills why are we working on it and obviously if the, the you know having choices and you know making sure i love how you say like everybody in your program is somebody that wants to be there that you know participation in therapy is a choice it should be fun i think that sometimes we just get so stressed about the goals and the data and the progress report and what the parents want and that it's good to kind of get back to some of those basics so thanks for thanks for talking about that Such great information. So I always kind of end with this final question. Um, What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about communication in general?
1: Uh, I would say self-advocacy and independence. So being able to use language to express your wants and needs, but also what you don't want and, and don't need. And I think people view self-advocacy skills as something that's appropriate for more advanced or older learners, but even our preschoolers can be self-advocating. It's that earliest man training. So asking for preferred items, but also again, saying no to things, opting out of things. So some things you have to do and that's a different conversation, but if they don't want to play something, also being able to ask for help. And as there's more language, being specific in the type of help you need or the accommodations or modifications that are going to support you, um, so again, we can start on that at a very early age. and I just think it really serves our learners well later in life to be as independent and precise with that, that type of
0: communication as possible. Yeah, I love that. So great. So where can people find out about more about you and your work? I have a couple different sites. So for our direct service, if
1: anybody is local to me and would like their child to come to crew, I have missioncognition.com. But I do a lot of dissemination for professionals. So we have some work at your own pace online courses, mconlinelearning.com. Then we have a blog post and um, some other resources available for purchase or download at mission cognition share.com. And I so appreciate the opportunity to disseminate here on, on the podcast. So we have a 10% code available um, to all listeners, and you can take 10% off of any course or any product at those two sites I just mentioned um, with the code ABA Speech. 10.
0: Awesome. And if you are kind of thinking about goal setting for social skills, we have a really nice um, goal bank that's just a framework from all the work that I do with the um, students in my private practice and also in a school. So I will link that up as well. Sometimes it's hard to wrap your brain around goal setting for these areas that are not as black and white, but still very important for our students' overall communication. Thanks so much for joining us today. Make sure you guys check the show notes. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.